thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and this is our Christmas edition, and it is going to be a special one that I I know you'll want to share with your friends, and I couldn't come to you with a special Christmas present unless I brought a special person to join our program today, and I've done just that. But before I introduce our guest, who you'll want to hear, I want to, to begin with a couple of Bible verses that you may think are not really relevant to our general topic of law and liberty, but our show is not called Law and Liberty. It's called God, Law, and Liberty, because there is a relationship between God and law and liberty. But I want to start with a, a strange verse related to the Christmas story, but very much related to it. And it's one that I've been reflecting on, meditating on, praying over, searching the scriptures relative to for probably the last two years, and uh, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, and it says this. This is quoting from the New King James Version, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, obviously a reference there to the original creation and God's work there, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. We hear a lot in the scripture about the glory of God, but notice what he next says, in the face of Christ. An interesting modifier. And then I want to turn to another passage of scripture that ties into it that uh, is found in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And I've read these verses many, many times. And to be honest, I just read them and accepted them at face value. You know, they they say what they say, but in terms of really beginning to grasp their importance and their significance, well, that's been a new thing for me, but it is critical to not only the verse we just read, but to Christmas and to law and politics. And so in Colossians 2, 1 through 4, the apostle Paul says, for I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Now the part of the verse that kind of tripped me up was, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And and I couldn't get to the meaning or the depth of that. Although if you read the verse, you would think, well, if I don't get this concept of the knowledge of the mystery of God, of Father and of Christ, then I'm somehow in some way, in some measure, missing on true wisdom and knowledge. And of course, today we want to exclude God. We want to discuss, exclude Jesus from our discussion of law and politics and policy. And, and are we not thereby admitting, according to scripture, we're missing out on wisdom 
and knowledge. So to discuss this, to bring this into context, uh, not only for the Christmas season, but um, a historical understanding and a present application, I want to introduce you to uh, my friend, my pastor, a noted author and, and speaker, Dr. George Grant. And uh, George, it is great to have you with us today. And thank you, because here's what I want us to talk about. I'd like for you to talk on, and I want to mainly listen and keep the, sh the show flowing. But what are these words that I've just read from Scripture? What do they have to do with Christians and what we celebrate at Christmas? And does what we're celebrating at Christmas have any real-world practical implications, particularly when it comes to law and government and public policy. So welcome to God, Law, and Liberty today, Dr. Grant. And uh, I think we have two questions that could take us a couple of days to unwrap, but we'll try to do it in a matter of minutes here. Well, well, Christians have been wrestling with those questions for 20 centuries. So if for us to wrap it up in the next 20 minutes, it'll be quite the feat. But it's great to be with you, David. I'm so grateful uh, to you for the work that you do every single day for all of us here in the state of Tennessee and for the uniquely uh, theological foundations you always lay for everything. You understand that worldviews matter, that ideas have consequences, and that if we're not grounding everything on what, uh, what the Apostle Paul in these two passages describes as the mystery of the gospel, uh, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, then everything we do will be futile. Mm. So thank you for that. Thank you. And boy, right there, everybody, we could stop the show. <laughs> everything we do that's not grounded in that is futile. Wow, what a, what a great statement. But but go ahead, let's let's jump into these two questions here. Well, one of the things that the Apostle Paul is describing to the Corinthians and to the Colossians, both churches that were set in uh, exceedingly pagan cultures um, in, in Colossae, a culture that was given over to both uh, typical Roman idol worship, but also uh, to a fascination with philosophy. It's one of the reasons why Paul constantly uh, brings back uh, the, the, the kind of deceptive thought that can come from a pagan worldview to the Colossians. <clears throat> and in Corinth, a center for uh, pagan idolatry, an incredibly sensual city that was given over to the pleasures of the flesh. And to both of those churches in those very, very corrupt cultures, the Apostle Paul says that God has revealed himself in a particularly powerful way. While he reveals himself in uh, natural creation, uh, through natural revelation, so that no man is without excuse. The truth is, is that he reveals himself perfectly in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God made flesh. He came to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. The, the idea that Isaac Watts 
uh, had in mind there is that supremely gospel notion that apart from the revelation of Jesus Christ, we will always miss the mark, not just in the spiritual life, in the spiritual realm, but in our families, in our relationships, in our work, in our culture, with our art, music, literature, and ideas, with our technology, all of it will miss the mark because all truth is grounded in the reality that God made the heavens and the earth. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, Psalm 24 says. The kingdoms of this world are the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Mm. So the, the first and simplest application of what Paul is saying in these two passages is that apart from a knowledge of who God is and what he has done, everything we do will be corrupted, manipulated, and fall into one form of tyranny or another. I need to interrupt here for a moment because this is so profoundly important. What Dr. Grant just said was that our knowledge of who God is, which is revealed to us most clearly in the Incarnation, that's what the writer of Hebrews was saying in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God has spoken in times past, but now he's spoken most clearly in his Son that if we don't have an understanding of who God is, this triune nature of God, this nature of God revealed by the Incarnation and the relationship between that God and human relationships and his creation, then we will wind up in one form of tyranny or another. And I just challenge you to think for a moment. How often have you been called to study who God is? is, the implications of him being an infinite and eternal being, of omniscience that goes beyond mere foreknowledge, omnipotence, omnipresence, holiness. And to the extent that we have not been drawn into urge to study or have a love for the study of who God is, we are missing out on that knowledge, that wisdom that is needful to avoid tyranny. Now let's pick back up. But there's something even more remarkable about what Paul is saying here, and that is that when Christ was made flesh, when the virgin gave birth to a son by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord God himself made manifest his nature mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. now, now, by that, I mean that in the incarnation, for the first time, we get a full uh, and complete look at the character and nature of the Trinity yes. and how the Trinity and the relationships within the three persons of the Trinity, the, the makers of heaven and earth, upon which all the foundations of the earth are laid, 
uh, by which all things in the earth are upheld and held together, as Colossians 1 says, okay. what, what we suddenly see is how the world is supposed to work. Now, friends, I need to stop here again to say, until a few years ago, it had never occurred to me the truth of what he's saying, that in God, in what we know of God, in the Trinity, we see how the world is supposed to work. Now, oftentimes, we think of the Trinity as only related to our salvation, not the way the world is supposed to work. See, that's the importance of the verses with which we began the podcast. That in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You don't know who He is and, and what all that entails that's revealed in the Incarnation. You will be missing wisdom and knowledge and you will be able to be deceived. And that, that's just a, a thought that I don't think I've ever heard expressed in the first 60 years of my life growing up in evangelical churches. Now let's pick up from there and begin to make a practical application. So in the character of God, in the nature of God, in the attributes of God, we're suddenly given a revelation of both why law actually constrains sin and how law is supposed to manifest beauty, goodness, and truth. Uh, we also see that, uh, that, that law, because we are all sinners, can easily be manipulated, and therefore, in the Trinity itself, we see checks and balances. We, we see a community where there are spheres of responsibility and authority. What the Father uh, and the Son and the Holy Spirit do in their function uh, will, will be different things. Now, the, the implications of that are huge. Um, because they tell us where the source of all true authority comes from, therefore where the source of all law must come from. Uh, it also shows us how those things are supposed to be meted out uh, in spheres and jurisdictions in the world. In other words, the Trinity becomes the picture for us for covenantalism or federalism, as the Founding Fathers called it. Yes. Um, and, and, and that is an incredible inducement to freedom, opportunity, um, and progress. Uh, going all the way back to the early church, uh, there were all kinds of struggles with people to try and understand the mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of God. And um, by the time we get to the fourth century, it became necessary for all of the theologians, all of the pastors to gather together to hammer out some documents to clearly define the character and nature of God and the, the, the true nature of the incarnation. What actually happened? How could a baby in a manger be both a baby and the most high God? 
Mm. How could a human being be both omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent, and still human flesh? That, that was a huge question. And so it was hammered out in a series of what are called ecumenical councils. Perhaps for, for the question that you've raised, David, uh-huh. the most important of those councils was held in the year 451. Between October and November of 451, the church gathered together almost 500 of the best theologians, pastors, thinkers, philosophers in the church. And they gathered at the city of Chalcedon, which is not far from Nicaea in what today is Turkey. And uh, they, they hammered out something called the definition of Chalcedon. Now, a lot of historians and theologians believe that what happened at Chalcedon laid the foundation for what would later become Western civilization. That uh, what happened at Chalcedon gave such definition to the work of God, the mystery of God, the gospel um, that in, in which are revealed all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge so that Western civilization could produce the most remarkable flowering of civilization the world had ever seen, mm. but also something else that the world had never seen. The possibility that authority and responsibility for the shape of civilization could be meted out to various jurisdictions and not all be limited to the emperor or the king or the warlord this was astonishing. Because what the Council of Chalcedon did in the definition of Chalcedon was they essentially said, God is the one who defines what is real because God made all things. He's the one who sets the order of creation. So we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we see these, uh, these clear mandates, these creational mandates that portray for us how the world is to work. Men can come along and try and rebel against those mandates, but men can come along and say, no, 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 there aren't just male and female made in the image of God. There's whatever we want to imagine. No, 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 no. we're not going to have six days and then a day of rest. Uh, We're going to, as in the French Revolution, uh, create a humanistic week. Uh, where there are 10 days and no days of rest. What the Council of Chalcedon said is, when you do that, you're headed for cultural and legal shipwreck. You're headed for tyranny. And everything that you attempt to build will be like the Tower of Babel. It will be not a stairway to heaven, but rather a stairway to chaos and abandonment. Again, I I want to interrupt here for a moment to let what he just said settle on us all. That when we deny what we see as the truth about God and the Trinity and the relationship between God and man revealed in the Incarnation, when we fail to see that, when that does not become the foundation for all we do, 
we are building a stairway to cultural chaos. We cannot, we cannot avoid, suppress, ignore, pervert, contort God's creational ordinances that are an expression in the created order of what we see in the triune nature of God. Uh, these thoughts were brand new thoughts to me over the last few years and I want to just stop and emphasize them because they are so important and as he said earlier, if we don't get this right, this understanding of what the nature of God tells us about the nature of things in itself, we will be engaged in futile exercises. Now let's pick back up. Now let's let's uh, let's move away from the historic and the theoretical and go go right to the practical. Uh, what this means is that uh, what God says marriage is ought to define how we function in a society. The state is not in charge of marriage. And, and, and hold on, let me, let me interrupt you there. The state is not in charge, I think was your words, of yes. marriage. Now, let, the state let's, doesn't uh, define marriage. The right. state doesn't have the authority to, to, to make marriages uh, legal or illegal. Uh, th those are outside of the state's jurisdiction. It's not the state's job. That's right. So now let me go back to, in part, this, <laughs> your first statement, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Part of what you're saying, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, so when we start in Genesis 1 and 2, we see the Lord create his earth, and part of the fullness thereof is that he's established male and female. He joins them together in a marital union, and that is his. Uh, that is his. That is his, okay. That is so his. government may have an interest in, in protecting, securing, uh, fostering, Facilitating, that, facilitating that relationship. Absolutely. But it can't, but it can't because it's essential because okay. government won't have a stable foundation if there aren't good, stable marriages. Okay. But it's not government that defines marriage. Okay. It's not government that authorizes marriage because these things have a prior jurisdiction. Okay. Now, let, let, me, let me pick up there on something that I'd asked you a couple of weeks ago that, that prompted this discussion. One of the things that Chalcedon said, in addition to these concepts of uh, this is one, the Lord's earth, it's all his and all that's in it, and this concept of what some theologians would call the economic functions of the Trinity, that in the external works of God of creation, there's the Father and there's the Son and the Holy Spirit, and uh, but but part of the incarnation, too, in, in Chalcedon was that God never became turned into man. Let's put it that way. Man never turned into God. That I think they used the words there. He is both truly God and truly man without compounding confusion. I think those are the words that mainly come to mind. But read, read those words there without change or confusion. What, what, what were those words? I don't have it right in front of me. Uh, yeah, it's uh, 
it's without uh, the confusion, one is without name Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. Yeah. So one of the things that, that crosses my mind is the incarnation is also telling us one of the things I've heard you say many times, you said it at restoring um, the vision that you uh, participated in earlier in the year, God is God and we are not. Correct. That, that the human of the second person of the Trinity or the human of Jesus never became deified uh, in the sense that he became Correct. God. Correct. And, That's and, the heresy of Arius. That's right. So, so part of what we're saying here, I think, when we're talking about this creator-creation distinction, when we're talking about civil government authority, is that when the government thinks it wholly owns and, and has absolute total jurisdiction over something like marriage that God has created as a part of the creation, or male or female, that we can say, no, there are actually 50 kinds of human beings or a hundred or how many ever Facebook now has or whatever it is. There's a sense in which in that moment, in that aspect, we are confounding what Chalcedon said can't be confounded by, by claiming a godlike authority over right. what is God's. Is, is, am I getting yeah. it right? It, yes. It, we're not only confounding it, but we're confounding it with madness. Yes. Madness being defined a departure from reality. If God himself and his creational mandates define reality, then a departure from those creational mandates is madness. It's yes. insanity. And that's why it doesn't work. That's yes. why the French Revolution didn't work. That's why the Soviet Union didn't work. That's why the Biden administration doesn't work. Right. Because when you depart from the creational mandates, you enter into a realm of insanity separated from the way God made the world to work. Right, right. So let me, let me bring this down to a real practical level. How do we do everything for the glory of God? And, and I've been grappling with that for the last few years, too. It says here that we have to come to the, to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, that God shines that light in us. And if we argue cases in front of the Supreme Court, like we just recently had the Dobbs argument on abortion, right? when we had the arguments on Obergefell about a marriage, when we don't ground them in, in creational realities, but instead make them mere matters of pragmatism, oh, we have marriage or because- preference. Or preference. Or, or preference. That's right. But when we, we have- a good preference, uh, and your preference might be uh, in accord with the creational mandates, but if it's just preference, then it's a flimsy argument. Well, and, and in that moment, what we have done as Christians, I would submit, and this is what's been hammering me, is that I have in part denied to God the glory that is due him yes. and have substituted pragmatism and winning the moment, and by doing that, obscured the knowledge of the glory of God right? that would otherwise be resident in making a straight up argument about life or about marriage and that it is a real objective given reality. Yeah. What, one of the things that we do oftentimes in the meetings that, uh, that you and I both go to yeah. uh, is we deal with second and third order consequences or yeah. symptoms rather than roots, root yeah. issues, root principles, root causes. Right. And if we try and solve things, 
at the level of second and third order consequences or symptoms, we'll never get to the root problems. And if we don't have root principles, then all we're left with are the low hanging fruits of our preferences. I know we need to wrap up. I want to ask you one other little side question here before I mention this law in Tennessee that's been eaten at me for the last few weeks. But I read in 1 Corinthians, there's in, I think it's in chapter three, but the apostle's talking about, are you of Apollos or, or Paul or whomever? And he says, you can lay no other foundation than that foundation which is laid in Jesus Christ. And I had always grown up thinking of laying a foundation for salvation, not in terms of laying a foundation for anything and everything else. Yes. And I think that's... It- That's exactly right, because Paul is about to, from chapter 3 all the way through the rest of 1 Corinthians, deal with a myriad of issues, marital relationships, uh, sexual perversion, uh, legal issues, Christians suing Christians, questions about diet, questions about health, all of those questions. And what he is saying there is, look, the foundation for all of life is the reality of the revelation of Jesus Christ in the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension to the right hand of the Father. There is where the foundations are laid. Let me interrupt here one more time to say what what Dr. Grant just said and what led to his comment, my question, my comment about seeing Jesus Christ as the foundation for my salvation, but not the foundation for all of created reality. That who God is, is the foundation for all of reality and how things are supposed to work, is a reflection of the dualism, the compartmentalization in my own life. And I believe that it's rampant throughout the whole church. Jesus is about salvation, which we get from Genesis chapter 3. But we forget that Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father were involved in the creation of Genesis 1 and 2. And see, if we don't start the Bible with Genesis 1, in the beginning God, and now we know who this God is. He's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If we don't start there, then we don't get the whole rest of the story. And we will wind up in a dualism that will eventually create a difference between the spiritual and the material, which is not true because man was created a material being with a spiritual nature. And we'll wind up in some kind of spiritism, emotionalism, divorced from the truth. But not only that, if we do not understand the relationship between the revelation of who God is that we see in the incarnation to law, we will wind up with mere moralism, simply a matter of ethics. And and then the sense of the spirit and the spirit of life is then missing from our work. And see, that's what I'm confessing here, is that my work was looked at primarily 
from a moralistic standpoint of what is right or wrong about human sexuality or about marriage or about parental rights or about religious liberty, but it didn't flow from what I understood about the very nature and character of God and the glory that is revealed of God there in the face of Christ. So we've talked about this, this idea of God, truly God, truly man, which is the mystery of God that we see now in the face of Christ, that in the understanding and coming to the knowledge of this, we have a full assurance that we can have wisdom and knowledge, and, and that is the foundation for all things. And then I ran across this law. I've been reading this law for the last six years, and, and a couple of words finally stuck out and went, oh my goodness, this is a repudiation of the incarnation. This is a repudiation of the concept that there's no confusion and change and confounding of God and his jurisdictional authority in man. And here it is, it's the marriage license statute. And here's what the statute says. Before being joined in marriage, the parties shall present to the minister or officer. So you've been sucked into the law here. Uh, George is a, is a minister. A license under the hand of the county clerk directed to such minister or officer authorizing the solemnation, solemnization of a marriage between the parties and their male and female, according to the statute. And those words before and authorizing just jumped out at me because we just done it that way for so long. You know, that's how I got married. I had to go down to the county clerk. I had to get a license. Talk to me just a moment, if you would, for the next couple of minutes about the impact of the state saying before a man and a woman can have a marital relationship that will be given any public meaning or acknowledgement or protection in law, you have to be authorized. And George, you're not authorized to solemnize a, a marital relationship as minister that will be given public meaning, public acknowledgement, reality, protection by law until you have a license. Can you just touch on that in relation to what we've been talking about? Well, first, in, in this statute, the state of Tennessee has inserted its place um, uh, before God, uh, has taken the place of God, has assumed the authority of God. Um, I'm not opposed to the idea of, of the state coming alongside couples uh, to create uh, legal contracts to protect inheritance law and all of the rest. Uh, I understand the the need for the jurisdiction of the state to come alongside couples, uh, but to authorize before a couple can actually enter into marriage to uh, to assert that authority is brazen tyranny. Mm. Uh, but there's a second implication there, and the second implication is that, um, in a sense, what the state of Tennessee is doing to pastors is it's uh, deputizing pastors as agents of the state 
uh, in order to uh, solemnize marriages. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I say at the end of every marriage ceremony, and I have performed hundreds of them over the course of my ministry, I never say, uh, as a minister of the gospel, uh, in accordance with the laws of the state of Tennessee, I always say, uh, as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, I now pronounce you husband and wife. The, the reason is, is that the state of Tennessee does not have jurisdiction at that moment. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, what, what I just confessed to, to you, my pastor, you know, not my podcast guest is, well, it, it's, I think it's a maturity of my own relationship and God working in me to begin to see that, wait a minute, wait a minute, this really is true. If we don't get the understanding of the implications of the car- incarnation, not just for our salvation, but our salvation in the total sense, as, as you said before, that, that this knowledge of the glory of God and the mystery of the incarnation and the Trinity is to go as far as the curse is found, even into government and law and public policy. This is a part of the problem that we have had for the last more than 100 years in the United States, is we have progressively outsourced to the state authorities and responsibilities that belong in other jurisdictions. Mm. And by centralizing, by outsourcing all of these responsibilities, parents outsourcing their parental responsibilities to the state, that means that parents are going to lose rights because they have already given up their responsibilities. Mm. Uh, This is a really important thing for us to understand. The great conflict that we're feeling right now is that we're seeing the erosion of rights. Well, part of the reason that we're seeing the erosion of our rights is that we gave up the responsibilities that stood behind those rights a long time ago. This has been a long time coming. It has been. Well, there's a cheery note to end on. (laughs) Merry Christmas. (laughs) But but it is the cheery note that because of the incarnation, because, as you said, of the sinless life of Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his glorification, this is not as good as it gets. Today is not as good as it gets. And, and, And that makes Christmas Merry, 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 merry. Amen. And we can say the gospel God in the highest. The, the gospel built this civilization. The gospel can rebuild this civilization if we just believe the gospel. Well, there's a simple recipe for Christmas, much easier than what my wife cooks. Just <laughs> believe the gospel and live the gospel. Dr. Grant, thank you for being with us. Merry Christmas to you and Karen and to your extended family. And everybody, thank you for being with us on this special Christmas edition of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.